was in um, middle school, a lot of you guys went through that period of life. I was at church one Sunday, and we had just had what was a, it was a Disciple Now weekend. I don't know if you ever went to one of those before, but on Disciple Now weekend, like you hang out at houses, and then you have these like big worship gatherings that you go to as students, and you have a speaker who's really good, and it's really inspiring and great for students to go through. And I remember one time, and I was in middle school, our Disciple Now speaker like stayed over through the weekend, and he preached at our church on Sunday morning. And so he's, at this point, he's kind of talking more to parents than students, right, because he has that opportunity. And so he wants parents to make sure that they're engaged in discipling their kids and understanding that it's their job to know that their kids grow to love Jesus. And so he's kind of engaged in this conversation with them. And a big part of that conversation was this idea of purity and that parents needed to be having ongoing conversations with their students about purity. And so he talked about this for a while And it's good. And I I think the idea of not just having one talk, but having like reoccurring, ongoing talks with your kids is great. It makes them not as uh, weird and awkward to sit in on. And so uh, as a middle schooler, I didn't think that was cool. But looking back on it now, I'm like, that's really valuable advice. But I got to the end of it and he gave this challenge. And the challenge that he gave to all the parents in the room was that that day, that they would have some form of the talk with their kids, like that very day. And as soon as he did it, like you could feel the tension in the room, right? Just imagine me doing that to you right now. Like you could feel the tension in the room because the parents are saying, what am I going to say? Like, I'm not prepared for this. I haven't read all the books that I need to read. Like, how am I going to handle this? What am I going to do? And the kids are sitting there saying, oh, I have to sit and talk to my parents about this. And so I'm one of those middle school kids who's like, this is going to be so crazy. And, and the thing is, is you can't get out of it, right? Because the parents and the kids are in the same room and they're both hearing this. And so even if my parents were like, you know what, I'm just not going to do it today. Me as a kid, like, I don't want my parents to have that conversation with me. But I'm also like, if they don't have it with me, I'm going to look at them and say, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And so there's this accountability to it. And so I remember getting in the car on the way home and crickets, right? Like, it's just awkward. Nobody wants to say anything. We get home and we eat lunch. And and, and my dad afterwards was like, hey, have you got a second to chat? And I'm like, okay. So we had this conversation. It certainly wasn't the first time we talked about it. It wasn't the last time that we talked about it. Um, But I say all that to say that there are times in life where uncomfortable moments have to happen, where we have to deal with tough things and we have to deal with awkward things and we have to talk about things that nobody wants to really talk about. We have to hear things that nobody really wants to hear, but they're for our good. And so we have to press in on those things. And so today is one of those moments. Today is one of those times where we have to have this hard conversation. And it's not here um, to make you feel depressed and it's not here to make you feel sad. That's not my goal. It's ultimately for your good. But I hope, honestly, hope that you don't leave here this morning feeling uplifted. I honestly hope that it's not lighthearted, but that this is something that we walk away from this morning, really examining our hearts and really examining ourselves to see where we are and to realize ultimately what God has done and how great of a gift the gospel is to us because of how far gone that we really were. And so I'm going to ask you to to stick with me. Like, it's going to be difficult, and it's going to have hard moments. And if you're really willing to examine your heart as we do this, 
uh, then it's going to be hard. But stick with me. We're going to get through it and know that this is for our good. And so last week, Charlie kind of set up this whole story of the book of Hosea. And he kind of walked through the whole thing and he gave you an overview. And so I'm going to do another quick overview. Some of you guys weren't here last week. And so I want to make sure you know what's going on in the story before we get too deep into it. But the story of Hosea is about this guy named Hosea. And he's a prophet to the nation of Israel. Now, Israel, is these are God's people, right? And so God speaks to his people through prophets. And so God is speaking to the nation of Israel through Hosea. But scripture tells us that about the time that God began to use Hosea to speak to Israel, he called Hosea to do something that's really strange. And here's what he did. He said, Hosea, I want you to go and marry a girl who will be unfaithful to you one day. That's a weird thing for God to tell someone to do right? It's strange to hear that coming from the mouth of God, and God uses much more intense words than that, which we'll get into in a minute. But um, so Hosea does this, and he goes and he meets this girl named Gomer, and he takes Gomer and marries Gomer, and uh, they begin to have kids. And so their first kid that they have is a son, and his name is Jezreel. And Jezreel literally meant bloodshed or bloodbath. So weird name, not on the top 10 list of names to name your kids, right? Um, But then it keeps getting weirder, and Scripture tells us that Gomer then bears two more children, and Hosea is not really included in that description, but Gomer has a daughter whose name is No Mercy, and then Gomer has another son whose name is Not My People, and God tells them to name the children these names. And so, weird thing kind of all the way around, and right around this time that, that Gomer has these children, she basically ups and leaves. She takes off. She leaves Hosea, she leaves the kids, and she goes off by herself. And what we ultimately find out later in the book is that she goes into adulterous relationships and ultimately into prostitution and finds herself towards the end of the story being a a sex slave um, in her day. And God comes back to Hosea and he says, Hosea, this is your wife. You need to go to her and get her and bring her back. And so Hosea goes and he finds Gomer and he has to buy her, physically buy her out of slavery. And he brings her back and makes her um, his wife again. And so today we're going to be looking at this story of Gomer. We're going to be looking at Gomer's life specifically And this whole series is kind of a series in parts. And I I say that this is a hard conversation because today we're going to be dealing a lot with bad news. There's not a lot of light at the end of the tunnel because if we really, like Charlie said last week, compare ourselves to Gomer, we have this refrain that he introduced us to, I am Gomer, then things don't look great for us. We put ourselves in a lot of bad situations with our sin. Because we're really no different from Gomer. We're hopelessly lost without someone who is willing to come and save us and redeem us. And so God orchestrated this story so that Israel could look at the prophet Hosea and see really what their relationship with him looked like. And so that one day we could, through reading scripture, look and see what our relationship with God is like like as well. And so we're going to be talking about sin today. We're going to be in Hosea. You can open up to Hosea 1 or look in in a U version of the Bible app, and you'll see uh, there uh, our notes as well. We're going to be really all over the place in the book of Hosea. So notes will be up on the screen. You'll see the stuff. It might be easier to follow along that way, but we will be in Hosea 1 um, to kind of get started and get to go. But the first thing I really want us to see 
in this book of Hosea is that sin makes us unfaithful. The unfaithfulness of sin. If you look at verse 2 in Hosea 1, it says, When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now we read that and we're like, really? God? Like, I didn't think you used that kind of language. Like, this is church. We're not supposed to be talking in these terms. But like, God is with his people, with this prophet, using this terminology of whoredom. And basically what he's doing is declaring Gomer to be unfaithful, right? By saying that she is a whore, he is declaring her to be unfaithful. We think that's a little too clear, and we're like, God, can you please be a little more vague? Like, we don't have to get into all the details. It's fine for us to know that she's a sinner. I'm okay with that. Let's just leave it there. But we miss out on what's really happening if we don't get into the details of what's going on. And that's why God uses this language. He's declaring that she will be unfaithful. And she may not have done it yet at that point, but he knows her heart and he knows what's going to happen. Now, this story doesn't exist so that Hosea can be the hero. That's not the point of it. But ultimately, this is an illustration or it's a picture of something bigger that's going on. And God is a God that likes to use illustrations and likes to use pictures. We just finished a series called Storytelling God, where Jesus, uh, in his teaching, uh, used stories over and over and over again to illustrate points that he really wanted to drive home with the people that he was teaching to. And it doesn't just happen in the New Testament, but it happens in the Old Testament. And a lot of times, when we, when we see it in the Old Testament, for the most part, these are real true things that happen. Charlie talked about this last week, that these stories that illustrate truth are real things that happen. And God orchestrated these things to happen so that we could look to them and see truth inside of these stories. Think about Adam and Eve. We look back to the, the fall of man when uh, Eve is tempted and Adam's standing right there and, and is a, just a total louse and doesn't do anything about it. Um, but lets her just fall right into sin. And this great fall happens, man enters into sin. That is an illustration to us of our failure, of our own unfaithfulness. Just like Adam and Eve were unfaithful to God, we are unfaithful to God as well. And the Bible goes on and to say even more about Adam and Eve, that ultimately we inherit like a sin nature from the first sin of Adam and Eve that Adam is responsible for causing all of us to have a nature that's prone to sin, that's prone to walk away from God, that's prone to do evil things, that we get that from Adam. And that's a whole sermon by itself. We're not going to get into that, or you can sign up for Theology 101 and hear a lot about it. Um, But we have this from Adam, and Adam is a picture of that to us in a really clear way. Or Think about Noah and the flood. Like God sent the flood basically to destroy the earth and to destroy everyone on the earth as judgment for sin. And that flood is a picture to us of the judgment that is to come if we do not accept the rescue that God is offering. And in the story of Noah, the ark that Noah built is the picture of that rescue. It's a picture of mercy to Noah and his family that they can be rescued, that they can be redeemed from judgment. And so as we look to This story, we see another illustration, and it's a pretty clear one. That Gomer is this picture of Israel. That the people of Israel are supposed to look and see what's happening in the life of Hosea with Gomer, and they're supposed to see themselves in Gomer. 
In fact, if you look at verse 2, we just read it a second ago, but think about what it says again. He says, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And who God is talking about when he talks about the land is he's talking about Israel. And seriously here, God is saying that the people of Israel are whores because they have forsaken me. It's not my language, it's God's. This is something that God takes very, very seriously. We see it so many times. If you look to Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, God speaks and he says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of this land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in this land. But there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. You wonder why God told Hosea to name his first kid Jezreel, bloodshed. Because God looks at the people of Israel and he sees the result of their sin. And all it is is it's causing Disaster and war and bloodshed. Israel's in trouble. They've left God. They have no love for him anymore. They don't know him anymore. Their passions are divided. They're they're worshiping Baal. They're worshiping images on their wall. They're worshiping through prostitution. All this stuff is happening. In moments, God, God offers them this great grace and they grab onto it and they want it. But at the very moment when things are good again, they turn away and they turn to lesser things at every opportunity that they have. And this is, God is displaying to them great grace and great mercy and great love and great faithfulness. If you look at Isaiah 2.20, God says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And they knew the character of God. They knew his faithfulness. But instead of running after him, they'd rather run after swearing and lying and murder and stealing and adultery that ultimately ends in their destruction. They've turned away from his grace. They've turned away from everything that they could possibly know, and they've left their greatest lover for a cheap hookup that's not going to give them any pleasure in the end. When I was a kid, I remember one day playing croquet with my family in the backyard, and that's probably kind of a weird game to play with your family, I don't know. But anyways, we had this really old croquet set, and these really heavy, like, croquet balls. And so the goal is you, like, hit these balls, and they go through these little things, and then you get points, and you got to make it all the way around. Um, so we were doing this, and we kind of finished the game, and most of my family went back inside, but I was hanging out in the backyard still playing, and I was a little kid, so I was picking up these croquet balls, and they were heavy, and I tried to throw them, like, as far as I could, and, uh, and then I started throwing them, like, against a tree, and then I threw it against my swing set, and I, I got kind of fascinated by the effect of that heavy ball hitting different things, and so I looked up at my house, and I saw this really big sliding glass door. And for some reason, I thought it was a good idea for me to go and pick up that ball and walk over there. And you're thinking it's stupid, but I thought it was going to be cool for some reason. That's the way kids think. And so I walk up to this door and I grab this ball and I just throw it as hard as I can at the glass door and the entire thing shatters. Now my family's inside the house and all that they hear is this huge shatter of glass. And so they all come running and they see me standing there in this croquet ball inside of the house, and I just remember, like, all of them, too shocked to say anything, but just looking at me, and it was that moment that I realized that I'd really goofed, right, that I had been unfaithful to my entire family, and their faces bore the fact that that was the truth, 
And see, the gospel, this, this story is a story about how we were unfaithful. But it's a story of love, about how God loves us in our unfaithfulness and wants to redeem us and, and bring us back. And it's not just about Gomer and Hosea. It's not just about Israel and God, but it's about God and us. It's a love story that God has for us, where God pursues us. But we have to know before we get to that point that we are just like Gomer. We are as unfaithful to him as we could possibly be. I think this works out in two ways. Number one, we're unfaithful because we sin. Our sin has made us unfaithful to God. It's pretty simple. We've left our greatest love for little bitty things that can't pleasure us in any possible way. We can't argue that we're sinners. Scripture is very clear about this. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. Proverbs 29 kind of says facetiously, Who can say that I've made my heart pure and that I'm clean from sin? The answer to that question is no one. Nobody can say that. We are all sinners. Think about Adam and Eve in that story. What I love about the story of Adam and Eve is that when the story starts, you see Adam and Eve walking and talking with God in the garden, that they have this intimate relationship with him where they are literally spending time with God physically. Can you imagine that? Like we have not had that opportunity that Adam and Eve had in the garden. But as soon as they sinned for the first time, something radically changed because when God came back to see them, instead of walking with him in the garden, where are they? They're hiding. They're hiding because they know they've been unfaithful, because they know they've wrecked that relationship and they don't want to stand in front of God with all the shame that they have from their sin. I don't know what our concrete balls are today. Maybe it's something that we look at on the computer late at night or that guy or girl at, at the office that the relationship's going a little too far and, and that concrete ball's breaking the glass door of, of our marriage or maybe it's the pill that we take when we just need to bring our anxiety down or that one extra drink that we know we shouldn't have. It's breaking the glass door of our soberness. Maybe it's the money that we spend on that thing that we didn't have money for and we knew we really shouldn't be doing that, but it made us feel good and so we did it anyways. And it's breaking the glass door of our family. I don't know what it is for us today, but whatever it is, we can't deny the fact that our sin has made us unfaithful to God. Secondly there, number two, we're unfaithful because we desire other things. Mark 12, 30 we see the greatest commandment. It says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That God created us and desires for us to love him more than anything. And not just more than anything, but with everything that we have. With all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our souls, and with all of our strengths. In 1 Peter 2, 11, we have a warning that says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. See, we were created to love God more than anything, but what happens is, because we're sinners, we have these other passions that pull us away from God. And we began to desire these other things more than we desire God. And we have a warning from Peter not to do that, but please... Don't let war happen in your life and in your soul, but desire God more than anything. Don't turn your love away from him to these lesser things. 
And we've messed the whole thing up because we were built for relationship with God. That's why God created us to be in relationship with him. But our sin has caused us to desire other stuff instead of him. Whether you're a believer or not this morning, I think you know this to be true. Believers, you know about that lie. Whatever it may be that you've done, you felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit and knew that's something you weren't supposed to do. An unbeliever, you probably just feel the guilt, realizing that when you sin or when you do something you shouldn't do, that some glass door somewhere is broken and it's wreaking havoc in your life and causing all kinds of problems. See, guys, we're building around ourselves bad news. Just like Gomer did in her life, just like Israel has done, we are putting ourselves in a bad situation with bad news. So sin makes us unfaithful. Number two, sin brings heartbreak. Can you imagine Hosea? Can you imagine what Hosea is going through at this point in time, what he's experiencing, what what he's feeling when his wife has left him? This is the woman that he married, that he made a covenant with, that he had children with. And all of a sudden she has left him and left him with with the kids and, and is off committing adultery. It's heartbreaking. And you have to know that Hosea, anyone can look at his story and, and understand and feel that he has to be experiencing heartbreak over what has happened. Because this is his wife. He loves her in a real way. But the heartbreak doesn't stop there. Hosea 4.3 says, Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Heartbreak is everywhere. Sin wrecks more than just us, but it affects things all around us, and it causes heartbreak all around us in a real way. And I think most importantly, sin breaks the heart of God. Look at Hosea 11. Starting in verse 3, this is God talking about Israel. God says, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. That's another word for Israel. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. In verse 8, God says, how can I give up on you, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. These are the words of the father who helped their children learn how to walk and learn how to grow and is feeding them and, and carrying them through difficulty. And God is looking at his kids and he's saying, how can I let you go? How can I let you go to destruction? How can I let you go to these things if you're destroying your life and God's heart is broken for his people in a real way. Thinking back to my story of the glass door, I remember my dad and my dad was the one who handled most of the discipline in our house. And that day and lots of other days, I was told to go to my room and I sat on my bed for a few minutes realizing what was coming. And I just remember that there were certain occasions when my dad would walk into my room and he didn't walk in with anger, he didn't walk in with frustration, but what I saw were tears in his eyes. And I remember my dad being sad, being disappointed, being heartbroken over what I had done, realizing that I'd made such a big mistake 
but it broke his heart. And it's the most effective discipline I ever had in my life because I looked at my father and I realized that he was wearing the weight of my sin. He was wearing the weight of what I had done in a real way. Guys, and that's God's heart for us. When he looks and he sees his people who are broken and hopeless in their sin, he's wearing our weight. It makes him sad. It brings him great disappointment. Jeremiah chapter 4, God says this. He says, your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom and it's bitter. It's reached your very heart. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain are the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Remember that our sin wrecks things to the point that it causes war, causes bloodshed. And God, knowing that we're heading towards that, knowing that his people are heading towards that, he hears the sound of that war and that bloodshed coming from our sin. See, first, guys, we break God's heart because our relationship with him is broken. Don't miss this. I think this is really important. Remember, we are created for a relationship with God. That's why God made us, so that we could be in relationship with him. And sin entered into the picture and broke every chance and piece of that away from us. Anything that we could possibly do to get it back was, was gone. And God is heartbroken because he knows that that's not good for us. Think about Gomer. Her life led her to slavery. Her decisions led her to be to the point where she was sold on a block to men after men who were abusing her. And I can't help but think that in that moment, all she could probably think about was the one guy who loved her and took care of her and protected her that she made the decision to walk away from in order to find herself as a slave. See guys, our sin leads us to slavery too. And God is calling us away. He's wanting us to walk away from it because he knows that it's destructive. He doesn't want us to have to go through it. He doesn't want us to feel the pain. He doesn't want us to feel the heartbreak of our own sin. Number two, we also break God's heart because Jesus was broken. Because of your sin and my sin, Jesus had to die. Can you imagine what it's like to be a father and send your only son to sacrifice Sure, for someone else that you love, but this is your son that you're giving up, that you're not just allowing it to happen, but you're offering for this to happen. Mercy and grace, it's not cheap. It's not free for God. And I think sometimes we think like God, God's all powerful. He can do anything. So it's not a big deal for him to forgive us, but it was. It cost him everything. It cost him his own son. And he's not just heartbroken because we've lost relationship with him, but he's heartbroken because he has to send his son to die because we chose to do something really stupid. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way in talking about mercy. He says, what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. We can't treat God's mercy cheap. We can't look at our sin and say it doesn't matter because it does. And it costs God so much us to be forgiven. Again, breaking the heart of God, we're creating bad news. The last thing that sin does, I think, that we see in the story is that it brings judgment. 
Think about the names of Hosea's kids. Jezreel, bloodshed. God's already said there's bloodshed and bloodshed because of your sin. No mercy. God declaring that there's not going to be any mercy for what's happening, but justice has to happen for sin. And then not my people. The separation from God is judgment in and of itself. And we see this idea of judgment in the children of Hosea. If you look back to Hosea 4.1 that we mentioned earlier, God talks about how he has a controversy with his people. And it's literally like this like legal kind of term, technical term, where God is bringing a charge against his people, where he's bringing a case against his people. But in this situation, God is the judge. He is just and he is right, and it's not going to fare well for us ever in that kind of situation. And if you read the book of Hosea, and, and I encourage you to do it, read through it sometimes, there's multiple chapters, you will see the judgment and the justice of God scattered across every single page. And I was studying through it this week, and I was like, man, that would be great, but I can't say that on a Sunday morning. It's to that point. But I want to give you a few ideas of just this, this justice. Hosea 4, 7, God says, The more they increase, the more they sin against me, and I will change their glory into shame. Hosea 7, 13, Woe to them, for they've strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they've rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Hosea 9, 7, The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall Know it. I could go on and on, but there's no need to. God is a just God, and he will bring punishment and judgment for sin. Romans 6.23 is a verse we talk about a lot, and it begins this way. It says, for the wages of sin is death. Literally this idea that when we sin, what we've earned from our sin is death. That's what we get paid for our sin. It's the result of our sin. It brings death. It brings bloodshed. And God is just in doing that. I know that's hard to hear. We don't like to think of God in these terms, but we can't ignore it because it's all in Scripture. Deuteronomy 32.4 says about God, The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. See, God set up a law for us and for Israel and said, just follow this, just do the right thing, just don't sin, just do what you're supposed to do. We have it in the Old Testament Israel was unfaithful, and we are unfaithful every single day. But see, God has to do what's right. It's God's character to do what is right. And when you think about an idea of justice, justice means that right should be celebrated and wrong should be punished. Right? Right should be celebrated and wrong should be punished. And so if God doesn't punish sin, then he can't be just. It's his responsibility, it's his duty to punish sin. And if God isn't like that and he's not just, it would be like him letting a murderer, a convicted murderer, back out on the streets to go and do it again and again and again. God has to punish sin. And I think like in our society today, like we cry for justice. We think justice is a great idea, but truthfully, I think we like the idea of justice, but we actually hate the reality of it, especially when it's pointed at us. 
because we're never going to fare well in a system of justice. We're sinners. We make mistakes. Look at our social media, right? Like we're just complaining. We're complaining because this is unjust and that is unjust. This happened at my kid's school. I can't believe this happened to me at work. Like whatever it may be, we're constantly shouting out about injustice around us. That's why we discipline our kids. We want them to be good. So we bring justice into the equation. And we celebrate good and we discipline wrong so that they can grow to be good people. When justice is looking at us, we shrink back. We don't want to believe it. We don't want to have anything to do with it. We don't like to think that we're bad enough, that we deserve punishment, especially that we deserve death. But guess what? We do. I do. You do. It's what we deserve. And it's bad news. But here's the hope in all of this. There has to be bad news to be good news. Next week, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at that idea of good news and redemption. But there's a reason that this bad news is all through the book of Hosea, that it's all through scripture, because we have to understand who we are apart from a gracious God. One of my favorite stories um, is Les Miserables. And a lot of you have probably seen the movie or, or seen the, the play. Maybe you read the book. It's like 1,500 pages long. But uh, in that story, you have this guy named Jean Valjean. And he's been in prison for about 15 years because he stole bread. So this is like kind of an intense justice system, right? He's been in prison for 15 years, and he gets out of prison. And one night, he finds himself at the door of this local pastor whose name is Bishop Muriel. And he goes to his door and knocks, and he just asks him for a place to spend the night. And so Bishop Muriel shows grace, and he brings him in, and he feeds him this incredible dinner on this beautiful table with all of this silver. And it's probably unlike anything Jean Valjean has ever experienced in his life, especially coming out of prison. But he has this incredible night with him, and then he goes up to bed that night, sleeping on a comfortable bed. In the middle of the night, Jean Valjean wakes up, and he creeps downstairs, and he steals all of the silver that's Bishop Muriel's and walks out of the house and leaves. So the police find him and catch him, and they bring him back to the door of Bishop Muriel. And just imagine this. Bishop Muriel opens the door, and there are these, these policemen, and this, this guy who is supposed to be asleep upstairs in your room, he's holding a bag that's full of silver from your house. What did Jean Valjean deserve in that moment? He deserved to go right back to prison. But you know what Bishop Muriel does? He looks at him, and he says, friend, you forgot the candlesticks. And he walks over and he grabs the silver candlesticks and he puts them in the bag and he tells the police that there's nothing wrong and they leave. And he looks straight at Jean Valjean and he says, I want you to take this silver and turn your life around. Jean Valjean leaves. And his life is forever changed from that moment. He finds himself in a situation where he's about to steal from a kid at one point. And in that moment, he realizes the mercy that had been shown to him. He drops it and walks away and he changes his life forever because of the mercy that had been shown to him. See guys, mercy's a big deal in all of this. We sang a song last week called Mercy and the chorus of it said, you delight in showing mercy and mercy triumphs over 
judgment. But just because there's mercy doesn't mean there's not judgment anymore. Remember, God is just. He must punish sin. This has to happen. Someone has to be punished for your sin. But guess what? It doesn't have to be you. It doesn't have to be you that's punished for your sin because God sent his son Jesus to take that punishment for you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how bad it was. It could be worse than Gomer. God wants to take that punishment and place it on his son and have his son punished to the point of death so that you don't have to die. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that great gift of mercy? We earlier said Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, and it goes on saying that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You may have earned death for your sin, but God wants to give you life. He wants to abundantly give you more than you could possibly imagine. I can't help but think of my family standing around me after I threw that concrete ball through the glass door. I try and put myself in my dad's head at that point, what any of us would be doing, probably dealing with the emotions of being furious in the moment, but looking at this great glass door, which probably costs hundreds of dollars to fix. And if I put myself in my dad's shoes, I can imagine that he's looking at that door and realizing how great of a cost it's going to be to fix it. And then he looks past it to me, his son, realizing that there's no way that I can pay for it. There's no way I could possibly come up with what it was going to take to make it right. But he could. And my dad did. And sure, I was punished for it. But my dad is the one who sacrificed to make the situation right. See, guys, this is what God does for us. Yes, we're sinners. Yes, we're terrible. Beyond what we can even imagine. And when God looks at us, he sees how far gone we are. He sees the wreck and the mess and the war and the bloodshed that our sin has caused. And he looks at us and says, there's no way that they can make it right. But I can. And I will. And I'll sacrifice to do it. See, the cross of Jesus is where the mercy of God and the judgment of God meet. Yes, someone had to be punished. But Jesus took that punishment for us. He bore it for us. So that instead we could be shown mercy. I don't know where you're coming from, where you're coming from this morning. But I hope and pray that you can begin to kind of feel the weight of this on you. You can realize, yeah, I've goofed, I've messed up, I've been unfaithful to God, I've walked away from Him, but Don't ever leave it there, but realize that there's a God who loves you so much that he's willing to sacrifice what he cared about the most to bring you back to him. That he's willing to pay whatever price it costs to make it right. And he wants to know you in real way. We're going to sing another song. I'll be standing in the back. And if you're here this morning and it's finally hit you, like you're feeling the weight of that, of your sin, you're feeling the weight of what it's like for God to wear that, to experience the heartbreak of it for the first time. And you're like, I can't bear this. I can't make it right. 
hope, you know that there is someone who can and who wants to and who wants to meet you. I'd love the chance to pray with you. I'll be in the back of the room as we uh, finish this last song, sing this last song. And Christians, let's stop treating God's grace like it's cheap. It's not. It costs him everything. And he's willing to do it because he loves you so much. And what can we do? God, it's hard. It's, it's hard to hear how far we've cast ourselves away from you, how far we've driven away from you, or that, that we're, we're causing with our sin just chaos and disaster constantly around us. And I pray, Lord, that we feel the weight of that, that we look at our heart and realize it. God, that we realize too that you love us so much that you're willing to do whatever it takes to bring us back. God, I pray for the people in this room that are understanding that for the first time, God, that you give them the courage and the boldness to make a move on that this morning, to say, you know what? I need that mercy. My life is a wreck. I need someone to be merciful to me. God, for the rest of us, help us to understand just what it meant for Jesus to bear the weight of our sin wasn't a light burden. It was the heaviest of burdens I could ever know. I'm thankful that you showed grace to us. I pray that in this moment, in these moments, you'll continue to show us mercy and grace as we wrestle with our sin. God, that you would drive us.